There are four words that can strike fear into the stoutest heart, words that can frighten young and old alike. You hear them and your pulse quickens. You brace for the impact of what's going to follow. What are the four words? I need a favor, right? (laughs) Scary, scary words sometimes. I guess if you're a cranky person like me. (laughs) It's been said that the world runs on little favors, from the airport pickup to the rolling out of a neighbor's trash can. Most of us are on both ends of favors all the time. In the halls of government, however, giving favors can get you into some real trouble. Right now, some are accusing President Biden's pick to lead the Homeland Security of doing his best to turn the U.S. citizen and, uh, citizenship and immigration services into an unethical favor factory. That is the quote. Meanwhile, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a Republican, is being sued for swapping political favors for a donor's help with a home remodel. Okay. Sadly, in this sinful world, many favors are not done out of the kindness of a person's heart, but as a means to win leverage or accomplish some sort of selfish goal. Now, giving favors like that is a theme in our text tonight. The chief priests want a favor. Festus, the new governor, wants to give it to them. But they're each trying to gain leverage for themselves in the situation for different reasons. Now, I'm no language scholar, but there are a couple of really interesting vocabulary choices used in this passage that will help, I think, make us think about our faith in Christ and the great difference between what God does and what the world does. The first word translated here is the one that we're reading as favor. It's the word charis. You've probably heard that Greek word before in a Bible study. We more commonly associate that word with the word grace. That's more often how it's translated for us. God's grace is his charis, his favor. We call it his unmerited favor towards his people. Now, the Jews are going to ask Festus for charis, and he in turn wants to give them charis, or at least the human equivalent, which is nothing like God's grace at all. You see, God's charis is unmerited favor given as a free gift, not for leverage, not to manipulate, not so he can hold something over us and get something out of us, but it's given out of immeasurable love that he freely offers us in salvation and satisfaction and abundance. It's his favor towards his people, working all things together for good, beginning and completing a perfect work in us as he continually sends us kind, compassionate care. That's God's grace. That grace of God is not only for our benefit as Christians, but it's meant to define our lives as well as we move through this world and through our lives, that we are defined by the grace of God. Now, that, this is not the kind of favor that Festus and the priests were talking about. No, they're elbowing here for position in a very deadly game. Their struggle is for power, and they find themselves in a tug of war concerning Paul, this Christian miss- missionary who's been imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. So where is the astounding grace of God that I've been talking about? Where is that in Paul's life? If, if God's grace is his unmerited favor and all of these, this great compassionate care and kindness towards his people, well, what's up with Paul? Why is he sitting in chains for two years, seemingly doing nothing? Well, it's there. In fact, even in these hard circumstances, we will see it at work in and through Paul. Now, his life wasn't full of material wealth or worldly power at the time, but he was defined by God's grace, and we'll see that he was wrapped up in God's grace. 
that joyous loving kindness given out of the fullness of God's love sent to help in time of need. Paul was definitely in a time of great need and the Lord did not disappoint. He never does. Let's see how the Savior gave grace to his humble servant while opposing the proud. Verse one, three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Festus was appointed after Felix was recalled. Felix was fired from the job after someone blew the whistle on his murderous corruption against the Jews. Now, in many ways, Festus was a very different man than Felix was. Felix, we saw last time, was a procrastinator, didn't like to make decisions, so it seemed, at least in this situation. Well, we'll see Festus is quick to act. He's making moves all the time. Though many historians think he was generally a man of higher character, at least the way that the world judges leadership and the world judges people, sure, from the uh, worldly historical perspective, you would rather have Festus as your governor than Felix, but we'll find he was no more inclined to true justice or righteousness or the gospel. In fact, he's going to be less interested in hearing about Jesus than Felix was. We saw last time, at least Felix had those embers of, of spiritual hunger in his heart. He wanted to hear about Jesus. He, you could tell he was kind of warring in his heart about what was going on and the conviction that he felt from the Holy Spirit. We're not going to get any of that from Festus in his story. He's going to hear the gospel, and he's, he's going to come immediately to the conclusion that, Paul, you're insane. And so just because he was a nicer guy or perhaps a somewhat less corrupt ruler didn't make him a better man from heaven's perspective. In fact, he was more hard-hearted to the gospel than even Felix was. At the time, the region of Judea was on the brink of civil war. There was significant unrest in every corner. The Roman government had been responsible for the slaughter of thousands of Jews and then the plunder of their homes. That's why Felix was recalled. And so Festus immediately gets to work as soon as he's installed in his office. There's no time to lose if the Pax Romana is going to be maintained. While he was busy getting his hands on the job, the leaders of Israel were busy trying to get their hooks into their new governor. Verse two, the chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, Festus, and they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul that Festus summon him to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. They say that absence makes the heart grow fonder, but not in the case of Paul. For two years, he had been benched, so it would seem, but his enemies in Jerusalem hated him all the more. Uh, they had not forgotten him. They had not removed him from their hit list. He was still, as far as they were concerned, public enemy number one. We are even two high priests removed from Ananias. Last time we were together, we saw Ananias was the high priest. He, he was accusing uh, Paul and all this. We're two high priests removed from him. The guy who came after Ananias was a guy named Jonathan. Felix had him murdered, okay? Now Felix was gone, and then they installed this other guy, Ishmael. But even though we're like removed and have somewhat new leadership here, still they hate Paul with just an absolute malicious hatred. Uh, they are not gonna let go of this issue. And so as soon as Festus gets to town, they were on him. They start hammering Festus, who maybe didn't know any of the details of Paul's case yet, hammering him to give them this favor, transfer Paul back to Jerusalem. The last time there was a plot on Paul's life, we saw that it had been this group of guys, sort of 
you know, I guess we could call them from their perspective, Jewish vigilantes who thought we got to do something about this. And so they had made this plot, made this assassination plan, and they came to the chief priests. They came to the elders and they said, hey, we have this idea. You want to go along with it? The elders said, yes. Uh, but not this time. Now the elders and the chief priests are going full Thanos and they say, fine, I'll do it myself, right? You guys couldn't kill Paul, we'll kill Paul. They're the ones hatching the plot. They're the ones putting the scheme together. It's really heartbreaking to see their descent into evil. Now, as we read the gospels, I mean, there's very little that commends us, the gospels and acts, very little that commends us about the Sanhedrin or the elders of Israel. I mean, they're into full-blown just unbelief, they crucify the Messiah, right? I mean, so it's not like we see this great descent, but when we think about what the leaders of Israel, the people of Israel, the, the priests of Israel were supposed to be, and then we pan over and take a look at what they are in this phase of their existence, it's just heartbreaking, it's just awful. Uh, you know, they were meant to be people who reconciled man to God, right? That's what priests were supposed to do. They were supposed to assist people in the worship of God and communion with God. They were supposed to be sort of agents of atonement, right? They were supposed to reconcile people to God, speaking the word of God and bringing purity, not only to Israel, but ultimately to the whole world. Even in Isaiah, the, the Lord spoke through his prophet Isaiah, and he said, I want the whole nation of Israel to act as priests, bringing reconciliation of the whole world to God. And here's what they're doing instead. Uh, spending what few years they have left before the destruction of their temple, though they didn't know about that, but spending these last few years uh, planning murders of a guy who was preaching that, hey, the Messiah arrived and he wants to save you. It's a really sad, sad thing. Now, we in the church are, have been made priests. The Apostle Peter explains that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And in 2 Corinthians 5, we read that God has committed the message of reconciliation to us and given us a ministry of reconciliation. That's your job as a Christian. That's my job. Not just for a few Christians, but that is the Christian job. And if you're a Christian, you have been brought into the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We are not to have a ministry of destruction or any sort of the conniving scene demonstrated here. We are sent throughout the world, scattered by God, to help the lost be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ as he makes his appeal through us. That's what the Bible says, that God makes his appeal through us, through his people, through his holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. And so not only are we the family of God, the children of God, we're also ambassadors for the Lord. And he is making an appeal to us. What is that appeal? That God hates people or that God wants to destroy people? Well, it's that God wants to save people, that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But if they reject that offer of salvation, then they will be destroyed. And that isn't what God wants. And so that's the job that God has given us, this ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. And so each of us as individuals and, and we as a, a church family, Calvary Hanford, we should regularly evaluate if we are fulfilling that purpose as God's holy priests. Are we in the business of reconciling the lost to God? Now, if I had been shackled to Roman guards for two years, I think I would have lost heart and gotten pretty bummed out. But when we see Paul and when he speaks, he's, he's pretty full of peace. Uh, 
He doesn't fly off the handle. He's not going crazy. He's not all upset. You know, despite his unfair circumstances and the length of this suffering that he was enduring, he was experiencing the power of God's grace. And it filled him not only with peace, but with patience. What an amazing thing that this incredible injustice was happening. I mean, we, in, in our society, in America, we kind of take seriously the idea of being wrongfully imprisoned, right? We're supposed to have these inalienable rights that you can't just arrest somebody and leave them in there for no reason. You have the right to a speedy trial and you have a right to representation and you have this and you have that. Paul didn't have any of that stuff. And everybody knew he hadn't done anything wrong. Everybody knew it. And yet he sits there day after day after day, not just in prison, but physically chained to dudes who probably have a uh, spectrum of affection for him. Some of them undoubtedly became Christians as he preached the gospel, but some of them probably saw him as the, the, the savior of death, right? That's what Paul would say. He's like, you know, when we preach the gospel, sometimes we are the savior of life and sometimes we're the savior of death. So there he is chained there day after day after day, not able to do the things that he clearly had a passion to do, planting churches. Uh, we don't, in, during this period, we don't think any of his letters were written, anything like that. So in a sense, it's as if from our perspective, he's benched and not really able to accomplish a lot of measurable impact. And yet he's full of peace and he's full of patience. That is the grace of God. Paul was able to trust that this time was not a waste, even though many days it must have felt like it was. Now, God's grace is bigger than difficult circumstances, and God's grace helps us to make sense of senseless times in life. Sometimes, most of you know that life can be very senseless. And if you kind of are you know, hit with some strange trial or some strange circumstance, you're thinking, what in the world is going on? This is a waste of my time. Why is this happening? And God's grace helps us make sense of that because those sorts of things that are occurring in our lives, while not always caused by God, are not a surprise to God. And the Lord doesn't give us a spirit of confusion. He gives us clarity and understanding. He gives us wisdom for living. And so though we live in a senseless world, and even in the world around us right now, I'm sure that uh, like me, many of you have thought over the last year, what in the world is going on in the world? Where are we headed? What is the deal? Why are people making the decisions they're making? This seems crazy. That seems crazy. Is anything ever going to get put back together? And the grace of God helps give us perspective, not only for the, the long game of God's grace of, yeah, one day everything's going to be put back together perfectly. It's called the rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, where everything's going to be fixed and made just right. Everything is going to be redeemed. And we look forward to that. But even in the here and now, the Lord God gives us, by his grace, wisdom and understanding and a proper perspective so that we can be the kinds of people who are at peace while jailed for no reason in, for two years in Caesarea. Or so we can be the kinds of people who are singing praises to God in a Philippian dungeon after we've been beaten for no reason and now are put in stocks. So we can be the kind of people that live these lives full of God's power and full of God's glory. And so we see God's grace working in Paul's heart already. He was trusting that this time was not a waste. And Paul was remaining faithful in his very limited circumstances, and he was still spirit-filled. And so despite the fact that he wasn't really doing what he was gifted to do, he wasn't really doing what he wanted to do, he could be confident that he was still in the will of God. 
I was thinking that it must be pretty frustrating for the devil and his angels to not be able to get to targets like Paul. I mean, think about this. Saul, uh, Satan wanted Paul dead, right? I mean, there's no question about that. He tried to have Paul killed like every five minutes. He had Paul killed at least once and the, and the guy came back, right? And so he's trying to have Paul killed all the time. They're lowering him in baskets. They're sending him out of the city. He's getting raised from the dead. So it's obvious that Satan wants Paul dead. And we see that that's true because he kept this incredible malice alive in the hearts of these elders. I mean, this is a real grudge, a real hatred that they have for Paul, that as soon as the new governor there, they cash in all their chips, right? They cash in all of their sort of, their, we're, we're calling in a favor right now, right here, right now. We want that guy brought here because we want to murder him. And we see in the Gospels, if I was thinking about it, you see in the Gospels that demons are able to do kind of a lot in one sense. Uh, demons are able to attack people, right? We see that in the Gospels. They're able to throw people into fires and into water and things like that. What did the one father said? He says, yeah, the, the demon who's possessed my son, he throws him into the fire all the time and, and will you heal my son? We know in the book of Acts, a demon-possessed man practically tore apart the seven sons of Sceva back in Acts 19. So why not just possess one of the guards and have him murder Paul? It seems like an easy formula to me, but this is more of the grace of God. God in his grace would not allow that. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The devil, for all of his power and all of his influence and all the ability he had to, to bend his captives, to do his will, and to influence you know, these rulers of men and all of this stuff, he could not lay a proverbial finger on Paul. He couldn't. And that's a wonderful thing. We see in the story of Job in that amazing scene where the divine counsel is there and and the Lord calls Satan forward. He says, what have you been doing? And then he says, I'm doing, don't worry about it. I'm doing this and that. And he says, consider my servant Job. And he says, oh, I'll consider your servant Job. I want to mess that guy up. And, and we see though, because Job belongs to God, Satan is not allowed to do anything to Job, anything, until the Lord gave him allowance, until the Lord said, okay, I'm going to allow you to go this far and no farther because I know what I'm gonna accomplish in this situation. And so, yes, God allowed certain things, but aside from, from, from God, right? Satan could do nothing other than what God allowed. Job was completely safe from the devil. Now, the Lord promises in Psalm chapter five that he will surround his people, quote, with favor like a shield. I love that. His grace acts as a shield for us. And that was true for Paul and it's true for us. No weapon formed against us shall stand. These are the benefits enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. That's what Isaiah says. No weapon formed against you shall stand. These are the benefits enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Paul was shielded from demonic attack and shielded from human attack because grace is not just a feeling, I feel great, I feel God's grace. God's, grace isn't just a feeling, it is God's function in our lives. It actually does things. It actually accomplishes purposes. It actually invigorates us and empowers us and helps us and supplies us. It's real, God's grace working in our lives. Verse four says, Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those of you who have authority go down with me and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. 
So Festus needed to bring stability into the region, but he couldn't start his administration as a pushover, right? I mean, this is, he's the new sheriff in town and they're coming at him hard and he's got to make some interesting choices here. He's doing this dance. He doesn't want to offend the Jewish community because the whole region is, is about to boil over. And the one thing that the highest officials in Rome, the emperor and those guys were not into was political unrest and civil you know, uh, unrest. And so Festus really had to clamp down and get everything to simmer a little bit, uh, but he also didn't want to offend these guys. And so it was interesting. Who, who, what kind of a leader was he gonna be? He didn't wanna get mowed over by these guys like Pontius Pilate had been. He didn't wanna get messed up by these guys like Felix had been. And so he gives the impression here that he was willing to work with them, but that Oh, he's going to do everything by the book. We're going to do this all by the book. We'll see about that. Verse six, when he had spent not more than eight or 10 days among them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the tribunal, he commanded Paul to be brought in. Interesting because at very first, he really kind of slows their role, right? He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not moving anybody to Jerusalem. You know, don't hold your breath. We're not doing anything like that. But then we notice after spending a few days with them, he's ready to scratch their itch, right? Notice how it says the next day, as soon as they get to Caesarea, okay, okay, let's do this. These guys want this. Let's convene this council together. He wastes no time getting to this unusual issue once he's back in Caesarea. It seems like the Jewish leaders had probably been priming the pump that week in order to get their favor and say, hey, well, while you're here in Jerusalem, why don't you come to this benefit or why don't you come to this entertainment or why don't you come to this banquet that we've set up in your honor? So we see a subtle change in his perspective. It would seem like Paul was at a total disadvantage in this situation, that the whole deck was stacked against him. He's got a new judge who's less informed about everything who's probably been wined and dined all week by his accusers, and Festus is completely incentivized to throw these accusers a Paul-shaped bone, right? I mean, so, so the situation looks really bad. You see, despite Festus acting like everything was gonna be on the up and up, he was still a political animal, first and foremost. He wasn't concerned with actual justice as much as he was concerned with the bargains he would have to make with his new subjects. Verse seven, when he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. Scholars say the language indicates that they actually encircled Paul in this scene as they accused him, hurling charge after charge in their effort to get him executed. Sometimes when a defendant is brought in to their trial, they break down when the charges are finally read aloud against them. In 2013, Oscar Pistorius, the Paralympic superstar, wept openly in court as the charge of premeditated murder was read into the record. But there's Paul standing calm and collected. I mean, he's not happy to be there, but he's not afraid or broken down either. Though his adversaries formed a ring about him, the favor of God was closer still wrapping him as a shield. And so it's kind of a reverse moment, I think. Remember that scene in the Old Testament where, you know, the enemy forces surrounded Elijah's house and, they, and his servant's like, this is it, we're all gonna die. And then he says, Lord, why don't you open his eyes? And he sees the greater force surrounding them, the angelic force. This is like the opposite, right? These guys have encircled Paul, but within there's a, in a tighter circle, there's God's impenetrable grace. Their accusations aren't gonna do anything to harm him. 
You know, right now there's a scene not unlike this one playing out in the court of heaven and you are the subject. We are told that day and night, Satan stands before God accusing you and I and all of our brothers and sisters. But we not only have God's grace to shield us, we also have an advocate who will plead our case, Jesus Christ. And we're told that our advocate will never leave us. Paul stood alone, right? He didn't have a public defender. He didn't have Johnny Cochran or anybody you know, fancy with him. He's by himself acting as his own counsel. If you're ever brought to court, don't act as your own counsel. It doesn't work out, okay? But, but in this case, in the heavenly courtroom, we have an advocate, an advocate who uh, in a sense works pro bono. He paid all the fees for us and he will never leave us, we're told. He has atoned for us and he has given us his righteousness so that we might enjoy the gracious favor of God. Our enemies may bring attacks and accusations, but here is what is true. If you're a Christian, here are some of the things that are true. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And I have decided to follow Jesus, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back, no turning back. These are just a few of the things that are absolutely true because of what Christ has done for us and won for us by the grace of God. And that grace is now offered freely to all who will believe. As an aside, it's so good and so important for us to be reminded of truths like this, these. That's why we sing them, uh, to keep grace as a life-sustaining melody in our hearts. Um, if you haven't read Pastor Chuck Smith's amazing book, Why Grace Changes Everything, read it. You can get it free online in PDF form. But it's actually true. Grace changes everything. And we're just so thankful that, that for our tradition in Calvary Chapel, that grace is a foundational bedrock of the way we do what we do. And that we always think about God's grace. God's grace, it changes everything. Read the book if you haven't read it. Verse eight says, then Paul made his defense, neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. Paul's very calm, very clear. God's favor gave him the ability to endure this hardship. The Bible says that God's grace, his favor strengthens us for moments like this. Despite how unfair this is, Paul is still a peacemaker. Trouble always followed Paul. It wasn't his fault. He wasn't stirring it up. He was a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. And listen, our world is already plenty troubled. We are to live at peace as much as it is possible for us. We are to be peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. That doesn't mean there's never gonna be trouble around us. Uh, the enemy brings plenty of trouble our way. In fact, Jesus promised, yeah, you're in this world, you're gonna have trouble. But Paul's not a troublemaker. We see that he shot straight. He was a man with con consistent integrity. No scheming, no maneuvering, no manipulating, no flattery, no personal attacks on these guys. What a great example to us of how to conduct ourselves in the power of the Spirit, even in a pressure-filled situation. Verse nine, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and be tried before me there on these charges? The charis of Festus had nothing to do with kindness or love. It was all about his desire to get on the good side of his subjects and have them in his debt. What a difference between man's favor and God's. Now, on one level, it would be sort of embarrassing that in his very first case as governor, he was unable to render a verdict. Doubtless, by now, he had familiarized himself with Paul's case history 
He knew there had already been an attempt on his life, but we see he's willing to sacrifice this Roman citizen to buy himself some polling points. Gross. His suggestion is ridiculous. Hey, we're all here. Uh, all the parties uh, that are concerned, all the officials that need to be here, all the data that we're going to have, we have. It's all here together. I have an idea. Why don't we all pack up and go do this same thing 50 miles from here? That's stupid. Like, it's ridiculous. The truth is, for all his political acumen, Festus will admit in verse 20 that he was at a loss to know what to do. He'll say to Agrippa, he's like, I don't even know, I didn't know what we were supposed to do. And so he, in that situation, defaulted to, well, so how do I benefit myself? It'll benefit me to do these guys this favor. I have a sneaking suspicion they're gonna murder some people on the way, but what do I care? One guy for a little more, one guy traded for some political stability. Let's do it. Verse 10, Paul replied, I'm standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So this was a deadlocked, no-win situation. In World War I, there were, there were many of these enormous, wide-scale, bloody battles that would stretch week after week, month after month, and only a few feet or inches would be won by either side. It was just a complete waste, a complete deadlock, and as every, you know, all of these people's lives were being ruined. Sort of like that here. It's just the same thing again and again, and they find themselves at an impasse because no one wants to do the right thing. Certainly the elders of Israel do not want to do the right thing here. Felix didn't want to do the right thing. Festus didn't want to do the right thing. And so they're, they're, they're deadlocked. They're at an impasse. But God's grace shows Paul a way out. He would explain to us in his epistle to the Ephesians that the Lord has planned good works for us long ago and that it is our duty to discover them. But by God's grace, he shows us the way. You see, so the Lord comes to us and he says, I have planned good works that I want you to discover and walk in. I, I know every day of your life. I saw them from before the foundation of the earth and I have specific opportunities and specific assignments and specific things that I want you individually to be a part of. And you are to discover them and walk in them. Now, that would be an impossible and, and a completely daunting task. How am I supposed to know what to do? But then the Lord also says, but by the way, I'm going to light your path. I'm going to show you the way to go. By my grace, I am going to direct you and instruct you and lead you. You just have to follow after me, right? Now, what had he told Paul? Jesus had appeared to Paul and he told him, you need to preach in Rome. It is necessary for you to do so. Now, meanwhile, everyone here is trying to get him to Jerusalem. Well, how do I know, you know, how do I do what God has called me to do? They want me to go to Jerusalem. I'm trying to get to Rome. And then God shows him the way. He says, why don't you appeal to Caesar? That's your right as a Roman citizen. While God's favor was showing Paul a way out of his predicament, it was also empowering him to speak with boldness. Notice the gentle warning he gives this new governor. Essentially, he says to him, look, man, you know what's going on. You know what's right. You know what you should do. Are you going to do it or are you going to be like Felix? Effectively, he's confronting Festus with his crookedness. Later, he's gonna preach the gospel to him God's grace gives strength to the weak. 
and provides the heart and the words for us to do our duty as his witnesses. Now, some criticize Paul for appealing to Caesar. They say it was a mistake. They say it was a guaranteed death sentence. It was Caesar Nero after all. But the truth is, Paul was acquitted at his first trial before the emperor. Uh, and then he was arrested a second time later. And though we remember Nero as a world, world-class nut job, at this point in his reign, he hadn't gone crazy yet. I mean, he was still relatively normal for a weird Roman emperor at the time. And so it makes a lot of sense that Paul would use his right to move himself towards Rome, which was his specific assignment that Christ himself had delivered back in chapter 23. And ultimately, Paul will say that he felt compelled to make this appeal. He felt like this was it. This is, this is the only move. And so he took it. Verse 12, then after Festus conferred with his counsel, he replied, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. It's hard to tell Felix's tone, or sorry, Festus's tone. I knew I was gonna do that like 50 times. It's hard to tell Festus's tone, but it seems to have a sneer on it or at least some exasperation. In this, we see that nothing can overwhelm the favor of God, not circumstances, not powerful people, not the schemes of man, nothing can overwhelm the favor of God. In this case, God used the human legal system to protect his servant and even have Rome foot the bill for his trip to see and ultimately preach to the emperor. That's pretty cool. So in the end, the human favors didn't work out, but God's favor was doing a lot. It provided Paul with peace and strength and patience. It provided him a way out of death. It provided him boldness to speak to uh, the truth to power, as people like to say. It provided him perspective and comfort and so much more. That same matchless grace is given to us today. If you're a Christian, you're offered the favor of God, the grace of God given in rich abundance for you so that you might be helped and sustained and prepared for the duties and ministries God has planned for you from before the foundations of the earth. We don't have to curry favor with him. He's not a, a man like Festus. He's not a corrupt you know, politician like these guys. We don't have to curry favor with God. He's already extended it to us, not because he wants to manipulate, but out of love and out of compassion. We are to walk in his favor and allow it to operate in us, whether waiting or moving, fighting or fleeing, resting or serving. Just one more thing before we go. I said there are a couple of interesting language things in this passage. The first is that use of charis and how the world was trying to do their own sad uh, copy of charis. But the second is where we see that Paul was brought before this tribunal seat in verse six. It's a technical term used there. It's the word bima. In the Roman Empire, it was meant to be this imposing place of judgment, but not for Paul. He didn't cower. He wasn't worried about it. And you know why? Because he had seen the Lord's bima, the real one, the ultimate bima. And by this point in his life, he had already had his vision of heaven that he writes about in 2 Corinthians. He had already walked to the streets of eternity with his savior. It wouldn't be long after this passage we're reading that Paul would write to the Philippians, man, to die would be really gain at, at this point. And he had already written to the Corinthians about the fact that one day all of we Christians are going to be summoned before the bema of Christ. Paul was summoned in before Festus to give this account, right? Every Christian here, we are going to be summoned to stand before the bema of Christ. But standing there, we have nothing to fear because our guilt has already been dealt with. It's already been decided. As Christians, we're dead to sin. 
There's no condemnation for we who are in Christ Jesus. He erased the certificate of debt that was against us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Praise the Lord. And so the Bema we look forward to isn't like Paul before Festus. It's a reward seat where Christ is going to say, you're finally here. I've been waiting for a long time. I'm so excited you're here. Well done, good and faithful servant. I know it's hard for us to think about this, but God, Christ is excited to see us in eternity. He, he's waiting for us. He says, man, I'm going to not eat of the vine or drink of you know, that until you guys are with me in eternity. And I think, man, we have to recognize that Christ is going to be so excited to see us in eternity. We're going to stand before the beam. He's going to say something like, you're finally here. I've been waiting for you. And then our work on earth is going to be evaluated so that the Lord might reward us for our service to him. Now, we are instructed and warned those things that we've done in our lives that are not built upon the Lord and not built for the Lord. They're like wood, hay and stubble that are going to be burnt up. We'll suffer the loss of them, Paul says. But what God wants is to heap reward after reward on us. So knowing that we have this appointment in heaven, let's not be like Festus or the Jews, busying ourselves with earthly pursuits, but instead live in and exercise the grace of God, building a life for his glory, knowing that there is a bema waiting for us, thanks to the amazing charis of God, his magnificent gift revealed and entrusted to us, to the praise of the glory of his grace.